Well, good morning, everyone. It is a non-rainy day in Vancouver, and I am grateful for that because now I feel like we're starting to get some summer weather here. And honestly, summer, why I love it is because, especially in Vancouver, is that it affords us a very special time to be able to worship God by being out there and experiencing the beauty of his creation. We don't normally get to do that when it's rainy or snowy in the same way. You know, Psalm 19, you know, tells us famously that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But a lesser known verse in there is, is that it says that also the sky above is a tent for the sun, which comes out like a strong man running his race with joy. And what we are to gather from that is that every time we look at the summer sun and see it making its way across the sky, we are to worship God and say, that is God's runner in the sky. It's the athlete that God has put up there to run its race and obeys its master's call. And as we feel the warmth of the sun that God causes to run through the sky, we give him praise and glory and honor. You know, this summer, we are going to be taking some time, as I've said, to look through the providence of God in numerous different areas of Christian life. But one of these areas that I'd actually like to spend some time on this summer is looking at God's provision for his people through the gift of music, specifically musical worship in the church. This is going to be a little different talking about this, but what I hope to do today by looking at this is I hope to convince you from the Bible and through reason that music itself, I think, is actually a God-given, gracious, heavenly gift that points to God himself. I think that's what music ultimately finds its ultimate purpose and meaning in. So before we begin, let me begin by just praying for us. Father in heaven, not to us, God, but to your name be the glory. Yours is the kingdom, God. Yours is the glory and the power, God, forever. And Lord, we're here to worship you today. And I ask God, just as we think about music and musical worship in the church, as we work through a series on this, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just enliven our hearts and show us, God, what your purposes are, God, for this gift that you have given to us. Father, I've written words here today, but it's ultimately that your scriptures have life. We pen words, God, but it is you, O oh God, who give life. So, Father, I ask today as we open our Bibles, as we think biblically, God, about the world around us that you have created, I pray, Father, that you would speak to our souls. Speak through me today, God, but ultimately speak through your word. And may we people of the living God have the joy of hearing our good shepherd speak to us. I pray this, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin talking about musical worship in the church, I think it's very important for us to define what music actually is. It's all familiar to us, but what exactly is music? There's a lot of varying dictionary opinions and also expert opinions and people with PhDs who have weighed in on this topic. But for our purposes, I'd like us to work with a very simple definition for what music is. And I would say it is sound ordered in time that has rhythm, 
melody, or harmony. So the song that we just sang, that Jason let us in here with the worship team, Crown Him with Many Crowns, I would consider to be a work of music. But I would not consider the sound of a jackhammer drilling concrete to be music, even though it has a repetitive beat to it. And I confirm this by going on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff in our world that passes for music these days. But there are no such thing as jackhammer symphonies or things like that. Just most of us generally understand that a jackhammer is noise and that singing like what we do on a Sunday is music. So jackhammers in normal operation, they lack a sense of melody. There's no aesthetic appeal to a jackhammer unless you're a construction worker who really likes it, maybe for some reason, I don't know. The most part, most of us in general cannot maybe define exactly what music is, but we know it when we hear it and we say, that is good music. So even if it's from a different culture and we don't necessarily agree with or enjoy that particular style, why music is so fascinating as a topic is not only because it appears all throughout the Bible from the beginning to the very end where people are singing in Revelation. That's what we're going to be doing in eternity, but it's fascinating because music is something that appears in every single culture on the planet. There really is no culture that has no form of music whatsoever. The fact that music is so ubiquitous and so widespread has led a number of people to conclude that perhaps music is actually a universal language. You know, neurologist Dr. Oliver Sacks has argued that music is perhaps one of the most complex aspects of human consciousness and that it's not only important for human, evolu- for human development, but that it was a necess- necessary part of human evolution. And it continues to be a key component of how we grow as individual human beings. So in other words, Music, in the thinking of some, provided an evolutionary advantage to individuals who gave them a social affinity sort of as a herd, and those that had music survived longer than those that didn't have the social bonding that came through music. That's one theory out there. There are other scientists in our world who completely reject that idea, like Dr. Steven Pinker from Harvard, who argues that music is not the product of evolution, but he argues that it's the byproduct of the evolutionary process. In fact, it is the byproduct, he says, of the production of language. He refers to music, actually, as auditory cheesecake. And by that, what he means is that music is something you don't need to survive, but it's really nice to have. So the point is, nobody consumes cheesecake because of its nutritional value. You eat it because you like it and because it tastes Good, even though it might kill you and clog your arteries. Same thing, he argues with music. It has an appeal to you. You don't need it, but you like it. And then there are others who don't agree with Pinker, and they reject his hypothesis well, and they argue that music is actually maybe just, it's actually more than just pragmatic or accidental or something that we like. You take composers like the famous composer Ludwig van Beethoven, who said, music is a higher revelation than all wisdom and philosophy. Now, that is really profound, coming from a man who is regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time. You know, most people, whether atheistic 
or whether you're a religious person, or whether you're agnostic in this room, most people in our society and culture would agree with a statement like, music has the power to move the human soul. Even if you don't believe humans have a soul, you hear that and you're like, yes, yes, I, I think you're right. And I think we understand, for the most part, why we can talk with each other, whether you're religious or not, is because everybody understands that deep down inside, music has the ability to move us at the very core of our being. Now, Beethoven, for example, although he was deaf by the end of his life, he actually still continued to conduct his symphonies even though he couldn't hear. It was actually reported of him while he was conducting his famous Ninth Symphony, the last one that he wrote, that though he couldn't hear the music, he actually was moved by it. And as he conducted, he would throw his hands up in the air really high, stretching himself out full, and then he would lower himself completely to the ground as he waved at the instruments. They said it was almost as if the composer himself thought that he needed to play all the instruments himself at the same time. Now, as he waved his arms like this as a madman and he conducted and people, you know, the orchestra players played this amazing symphony, at its outset, the first playing of it, it received five standing ovations from the crowd. So beautiful was it as a piece. And it goes down in history as one of the most beautiful symphonies ever written. You take the same thing, for example, when you look at George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. Uh, when it was performed, the story goes that in the last portion of that work, when they were singing the glorious Hallelujah Chorus, the story is told that King George actually stood to his feet in awe of what was being sung as a praise to God. And because the king stands, everyone else is obligated to stand. And that's one of the stories and rumors that we have of how the tradition of us standing at the Hallelujah Chorus originated. I don't know fully whether that's true. Historians debate that. But the point is this. Music is powerful enough to move a king. And it moves us because it pulls us out of the very moment that we live in, out of the ordinariness and the mundane of life, and seems to transport us into another world of kind of thrilling beauty, a world really that is beyond this world. And we find our souls deeply satisfied when we hear good music. So, you know, I've thought about this, and I've, I don't know if you ever have. Have you ever wondered why people like listening to music. Why do we listen to it? We know it moves the soul, but why do we do it? You know, in a society like ours, the North American society that says time is money, sitting around and listening to music is hardly a productive exercise and seems to fly in the face of a culture that values pragmatism, getting things done, making new things. What on earth does listening to music accomplish for you? And I think the reason that why we like it so much has to do with the way that we were created. I think we were created to be moved, enthralled, and awed by things that are far greater than ourselves. And actually, we are created, I think, to give praise. That's fundamentally, I think, what is at the core and the center of the human heart. 
You know, C.S. Lewis puts it like this about praise. He said, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, Romeo praising Juliet, vice versa, da-da-da-da-da, readers praise their favorite poet, walkers, the countryside, children, flowers, mountains. C.S. Lewis said, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. So my point is this. We were created to give praise. That's at the very center of our being. And music is the vehicle by which our affections are pointed towards praiseworthy objects or things. So spontaneous praise and delight in that which is beautiful is part of actually what it means to be human. That's why when you find people who are unmoved by the beauty of a symphony or a bride in her beauty, you say, are you a robot or are you made of stone? Don't you see what everyone else is seeing and giving praise to? Some, it's one thing a robot can't do. A robot can do math, but a robot does not look at a sunset and say, that is beautiful. It doesn't, unless it's programmed to do so. It's what it means to be human. We all know this. You know, since we understand beauty intuitively, I think it's understandable why then music itself in all the cultures around the world should be a medium for praise, specifically actually praise to God. So notes in harmony, not dissonance, with counterpoint, flowing melodies, they create a sense of movement, and this transcends human language. Words don't seem adequate to express what is being communicated by music. It talks directly to our souls that we're made to worship our Creator at the very center of our being. For those of you who are outlining, I put this number one in your outline. Number one, I think beauty shows us the beauty and brilliance of God in his creation. See, music by its very nature lifts our spirits and invokes in us a sense of wonder that reflects the fact that the God that we serve is not a God of confusion, but a God of order and peace. And just as the Garden of Eden was to be cultivated by man to declare the brilliance and the orderliness of the God who created that garden, so also does the careful cultivation and the arrangement of notes produce an insight into a God himself who is brilliant and also orderly, not through our eyes this time, but through our ears. And that's why I think that we as Christians actually should love beautiful music and be musical because it actually shows something about God, not with the eyes, but with the ears. Now, some have argued, you know, that the power of music and the beauty of it is actually that really it's connected to the emotions. And why we like music so much is that it just moves us, and that's why it's great. Now, I think that is certainly true, that music can move us in terms of its emotions, but I don't think that's actually complete. I think that argument is inadequate. I think the reason that music is actually powerful is not just because it has the ability to move us and our emotions, but actually because it directs us to the truth. 
absolutes that we actually functionally believe in that our emotions respond to. So for example, um, have you ever thought about why people like listening to the soundtracks you know, of, of movies that have incredibly heartbreaking, you know, scenes, you know, tragedy, you have a hero that is dying in the arms of his lover because he sacrificed himself so that her and everybody else can live. People weep and they cry at this. And these scenes, you know, are often beautifully scored. They have lifting, you know, string melodies. There's tension there. It sounds almost, if you were to describe the music, kind of this bittersweet tonality to it. Bittersweet, bitter because there's death that's happening, but sweet at the same time because the person who's dying is dying for a noble cause. And you can't help but feel, even though you're crying tears, that that's absolutely right. You know, so you say... It's bittersweet, and the music matches that. I think deep down inside, human beings actually believe that life is not objectively meaningless, and that things like noble sacrifice, courage, and steadfast love, even in the face of adversity that causes your death, is actually right, and human beings should aspire to these things. Music is powerful, I think, not because it's just aesthetically pleasing and because it's beautiful, but because or not because it just resonates with human emotion, but because it resonates of truth that our hearts grasp and our emotions then follow along with that truth. And this is important to understand. I have another quote by Lewis who's right, I think, when he puts it like this. The books of the music in which we thought the beauty was located and will betray us if we trust them, it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. For they are not the thing itself. They are the only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a, car, from a country we have not, never yet visited. So Lewis's point is this, is that the beauty of music is actually to point us to the greater beauty, a divine beauty that is found only in God himself and the beauty of his law, and the beauty of his way for us to actually live. See, if music resonates in us, because it is connected with emotion that is linked to ideas that we hold to and value, such as truth, justice, righteousness, sacrifice, and we believe in these things, then I think that if we want to believe this, it actually necessitates a belief in the existence of God. See, you can't argue and tell another person that sacrifice, compassion, or taking care of the poor, giving up of your own life so that others may live is absolutely right if you have no objective standard by which to measure other people by. So if another person murders someone to acquire their property, and another person instead lives a whole life in which they spend their decade after decade, feeding children in an orphanage, if you think about it, what does it matter in the grand scheme of things if the material world is all that there is? One of these days, if the material world is all that there is, this sun that, we, that warms our skin will eventually burn out. The rock that is known, to the earth, known as the earth will grow cold. Human beings will go extinct like the dinosaurs, and all that we have valued and the things that we have done will disappear into empty nothingness as entropy takes over and everything burns up and disappears. Or perhaps some more advanced life form will take our place. 
what will it matter in the course of a few billion years that one individual lived their life stealing and taking advantage of others and another person ran an orphanage? Honestly speaking, if you are honest with yourself, it won't mean a thing. But if there is a God who defines what is right and wrong, and eternity is longer than a few billion years, and there, this God has standards for how we are to live, then what you and I do on this planet, though we are like little ants here, is of eternal significance and absolutely matters. So if there is an objective basis for right and wrong, and we find beauty in it, and we say that's right, and we write music that matches that, I think this necessitates actually the existence of God. Music is beautiful not just because it sounds good, but because it points us to greater truths that our hearts know are right. And if you have absolute laws, you must have an absolute lawgiver as well. I put this number two in your outline. Music affirms the existence of God as an absolute lawgiver. And honestly speaking, I was not smart enough to make this up. Others have come to this same conclusion, even non-Christian writers. Kurt Vonnegut, who is a well-known writer and poet, not a Christian himself, but would call himself a Christ-loving atheist. It's crazy. You know, that's the term he uses to describe himself. Said this about music. If I should ever die, God forbid, let this be my epitaph. The only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. Yeah, that's an amazing statement coming from an atheist. Proof of the existence of God is music. See, really, truly, music is a window into another world, not merely the product of evolution, but a world that is the product of an intelligent creator who has given us the transcendent beauty of music to awe the home human soul, arrest our hearts, and lift us up, I think, into worship. Music is a reminder to us that when we sit down and we listen and we are overcome by beauty, we are not wasting our time. Human beings were not primarily created for work and productivity, but we were created to worship. And that's what we learn also from the dialogue of Mary and Martha. Sometimes it's much better to be Mary who sits there at the feet of our Savior and says, Lord, what I want ultimately is you. I want to sit there at your feet and behold the King in his beauty and be entranced by this. My soul longs to be moved. That's what I want the most in life. That's what it means really to be human. You know, the English poet Walter Savage Landor in the 19th century was right when he said this about music. He said, music is God's gift to man, the only art of heaven given to earth, and the only art of earth that we take to heaven. And he's right. We do a lot of singing in the book of Revelation. That's what music is ultimately before, and we see this all throughout the Bible. I think it's actually really clear when you read the scriptures. In the beginning, God created music. Now, before you call me a heretic and say, this pastor doesn't know his Bible, and I've read Genesis, and I've never seen that in there, let me explain to you. You read the book of Job, Job 38, 7, and we learn this, right? Though the Bible doesn't document, you know, uh, the creation of angels, the fall of Satan, and it doesn't document some of the other things which are really important, like subatomic physics and other things which are exciting in this world. Yet, you see little glimpses of what God was doing 
throughout creation. Job 38, 7 tells us this, that when God sank the foundations of the earth into place, it says that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted together for joy. In other words, the sons of God here are the angels. When they were created and watched God ripping the mountains out of the water, forming the Himalayas, and forming the dry land, and as these things exploded into being, the angels couldn't help but look at the creative work of God and sing His praise. You know, they'd never been to music school. They'd never heard a symphony before, but out of the very core of their being, they simply did what was the only appropriate response that any created being can do to the Creator's work, and that is to give praise. See, the first music in the world actually was not made by human beings, but was made by angels. And music, I think, and the worship of God and His merciful response to us as we worship Him in spirit and truth all go hand in hand together. You know, the example that I published in the devotional this week was from the book of 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, which reads this. This is one thing that you get to see about the marvelous nature of music. The text reads like this, brothers and sisters. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. Now the background to this passage in the book of Kings is that Elisha the prophet is responding to the urgent plea of the king of Israel to do something about the crisis that faces his army. They have no water. They're wandering around. Their army is going to die. If their army doesn't stand to fight, an entire Moabite army is going to take over the land of Israel and wipe them all out. But in spite of the very immediate danger, when Elisha is actually called to deliver a word from the Lord, he doesn't do what most of us would think that he would do. He doesn't offer a burnt sacrifice, does not call a church service. He instead calls for a musician. And I don't think it's explicitly said here in our text, but I think we can assume that what was being played was not like the Beatles or just something that was pleasant, you know. They played something that was a worship song. And as Elisha drew near to God and the people of God worshipped him, it says the hand of the Lord actually came on them and spoke and revealed God's merciful plans and his purpose to them. See, the Israelites had no hope whatsoever that God would deliver them, but in his mercy, he chose to have a miracle occur, and pools of water appeared enough for the entire army to drink, and the same pools actually led to the death of the Moabite army. It's really remarkable. And I think this pattern occurs at other places in the scriptures. For example, when you read 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Saul is about to become king, he goes up to join a group of prophets who are prophesying, and as they are singing, and they are playing music with the lyre and the tambourine and the lute, it says that the Spirit of God comes over Saul as they're worshiping a musical song, and he himself actually begins to prophesy. Can't help but do anything else. Later, you find that when Saul goes bad, and he is trying to kill David, 
you know, before he gets to that point, he actually has this evil spirit that comes over him in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it tells us that they found a musician who turns out to be David, who actually plays music for him. And as he plays music for him, the evil spirit is actually driven away when he plays. Now, David being known in the scripture as the sweet psalmist of Israel and wrote like half the psalms in the Bible, I am certain that David was an individual who played regular worship music. So as he plays and sings praise to God, the demons and the evil spirits run away from that which is absolutely abhorrent to them, the worship of God. You know, the same thing you find as you go on. Second Chron- in Second Chronicles chapter 20, you read actually about a huge army of Moabites, Ammonites, and all these people who are about to attack King Jehoshaphat in Judah. The text tells us that Jehoshaphat was absolutely scared and he calls for a time of praise, uh, prayer and fasting to God. And as they're praying and seeking God, the Spirit of God comes across a random individual and tells them that the Lord says this, don't worry, I'm going to save you all. You don't even have to fight. I'll take care of it for you. And the very next day, the text says this, and they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. You know, what's amazing about this, brothers and sisters, is that this is the dumbest battle strategy ever. But It is typical in Israelite warfare. Who goes out to fight and says, hmm, what do I need for the frontline troops? Maybe I'll put the guys with the trumpets first, then I'll put the drummers, and then I like the flutes, I'll put those third. At the very end, I'll put all my guys with the swords. Like you do that, normally you'll die. But the reason that it succeeds here is because there's a theological belief that underpins Israelite warfare. And that is that the battle does not belong to human beings, but the battle actually belongs to the Lord. And so they go out in faith. And when Jehoshaphat commands his people to sing, the text says, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the enemies. You know, this is... Typical all throughout the Bible as God's people humble themselves, go to him in praise and absolute adoration and worship, the God of Israel shows up and says, here, I am with you. Second Chronicles 5, we read about the dedication of the temple that Solomon has built for the Lord. And he gathers all the professional musicians together to sing praise to God. And the text says this here, Second Chronicles chapter 5. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to God, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord 
was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. You know, it's stunning when you think about it. When people worship God in spirit and in truth and in good music to Him, as they use that avenue, that vehicle that God has given to express our praise to Him, He shows up. That's what I said last week when we talked about Psalm 22 that says, You are holy enthroned on the praises of your people. Every king on the planet is geographically bound. Only the king of the universe, our God, is able to place his throne wherever his subjects worship and adore him. He is not bound like the other kings of this world are. He can be anywhere. And the point is when the church gathers and has our hearts tuned to sing his praise and we express ourselves in corporate worship through skillful fingers on instruments or with mouths, the result is that God is present with us in a very, very special way. We don't go to church to hang out. We go to be with the church, the family of God, to experience his presence and to sing his praise. That's why we sing. We sing because we want God to be with us the God that we love and who saved our souls. It's all throughout the Bible, right? Colossians 3.16, right? We are told to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We sing songs and spiritual songs and hymns to one another, making melody to the Lord with our hearts. You read in James 5.13 that says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You read in the book of Revelation that the saints there sing a new song that, or the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb together. All this to say that the song of the Lamb of Jesus Christ and the mercy of God and what he has done for us will form the very core of our worship hymnal in heaven. That's the greatest type of song that you can actually ever sing. Songs of worship to Jesus Christ. You know, I put this in your outline for you. Number three, music reminds us that we need resolution and peace from God. See, I think ultimately when you think about it, the very structure of music itself, the way that we like it, actually points to God himself. And the most beautiful piece of, or the most beautiful piece of music, I think, in the world, really, is the symphony of God through Jesus Christ. And when you hear the gospel story, it has all the markings of a good piece of music. It tugs at your heart, really, like the movements of a symphony. See, when we hear of the story of the Garden of Eden, you can almost imagine it's like the harps and the strings that are playing this idyllic sort of sounding tune that reminds us that the world was once supposed, once a place of absolute beauty without a single hint of destruction or sin. And then as human history unfolds, we hear like the dark tones of like strings and minor keys and like the cellos that are playing as Adam and Eve fall into sin and humanity descends into utter chaos. We see conflict, right, in humanity as human beings try to struggle for a solution. Major keys, minor keys, darkness and light that make up good music and conflict and all this builds up to a crescendo. You know, at the high point of the symphony, when you get the Son of God who appears in the world. And it's like this deafening roar as people listen to this. It's marvelous. And then silence as he's killed. And you go, I can't live like this. I can't have a symphony that ends like this, that builds up to a point and just stops. And then 
on that Easter Sunday as the stone rolls away, like any good movie, you hear the horns, right? The horns, they just get louder and louder and louder as they proclaim the coming of a king who rises to resurrection life and beauty. And that's the trumpet sound that the scripture says we will hear at the very end of the day when Jesus returns and all of creation will sing his praise just as we said in Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And this symphony will come to an absolutely magnificent conclusion in that finale. That's how it will end, and that final ending will enthrall every single human being on the planet. And friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is sweet. It is the sweetest music that you could ever hear for your soul. For in the gospel, you see, the dissonance caused by the sin of your life is resolved and taken away, and the minor key tones are resolved into a major key of victory through Jesus Christ. See, you understand, friends, why you're so awed when you listen to music. You're awed because it communicates truth about this life to you. And the ultimate truth that you and I need to believe in is the truth about our sinful condition and the major resolution and reconciliation and a beautiful ending that comes only through the work and person of Jesus Christ. God gives us music, not just as something to please our ears, but as something to point us to the greater beauty that is found in only himself. The beauty and orderliness of music is meant to point you to the beauty and the orderliness of the creator God. Your feet want to move because you were created to dance before your king for all of eternity. And as your heart is drawn to music and drawn to the truths that lies behind music, you are reminded the very existence of God is necessary for you to believe in these foundational truths. You know, for you are Christians, the reason you're a believer today is because you at one point in your life heard the gospel symphony and it resolved the pattern of tension and sin in your life and gave you a peace and resolution that you could never hope to accomplish on your own and you love him for it, for taking your very life and rearranging those jumbled notes into something that makes sense and sounds good so that when the world looks to you, they say, who wrote that? Who, who ordered your life like that so that it sounds so good? And you look not to the instruments and you look to the creator and say, that's my composer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he can be yours as well. Isn't that what you ultimately want? Isn't that why we actually love music so much? Music is not the ends. It is a pointer, a pointer to what is really real. You know, Christians, I want us never for, to forget I hope that we honestly cultivate music as a passion in our church here and we grow in our ability to sing together. And throughout the next few weeks, actually, what I'm going to be doing is going to be teaching on Christian worship, specifically musical worship, the history of it, how we're going to be doing it as a church, what the biblical foundations for it. But if you don't understand what music is or why God gave it as a gift to us, how marvelous it is, it doesn't really make sense to you. Church, God gave us music as a gift as a vehicle to express our praise to him. May we as Christians steward that gift well as we sing, not only here on Sundays, but also in our homes. But may the most important music that we make be the music that God makes out of our lives 
that sing to the people of this world and point to our great composer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us and giving us the common grace gift of music that touches all human beings on the planet alike. I pray, Father, that you would help us never to be satisfied by simply listening to tunes without giving praise to the creator who made that possible. Father, I pray as we study this summer going through musical song and the nature of Christian worship and how Christians have worshipped in the past and the biblical commands that are given to us to worship, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. Change us, mold us, shape us, O Lord, and may the mouths that we have give you praise and the hearts, O Lord, that are tuned to sing your praise honor you as well. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest symphony conclusion in the world. We thank you for a Jesus who loved us so much, O oh God, and did not just leave us, God, in the blues or in the dark, unresolved tension of our lives, but came, O oh God, to bring about a reconciliation and a resolution that no human being alive on the planet could ever hope to give. So, Father, we give you thanks and praise. Thank you for the gift of music, but ultimately thank you for the gift of your Son. In his name we praise, and in his name we sing. Amen.